The last several weeks, we've been going through a series called Imitators and Examples. And this is a series in 1 Thessalonians, and we've been talking about how we're supposed to imitate and how we're supposed to follow the examples of other people and how we're supposed to become the kind of people who can be imitated and who can be examples. This week, we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. Let's read that together. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So when we thought we could stand it no longer, we thought it would be best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that we get to gather together as your church. Thank you for the technologies that make it possible for us to still be able to engage with one another even though we aren't gathered together here in person. God, we ask that today you would you would teach us a little bit more about yourself. You would teach us a little bit more about what it means to become the kind of person who can be an example to others. God, we ask that you teach us how to imitate you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Satan hates your faith. Satan hates your faith. There is nothing that he would more want to ruin and take from you. There is nothing that is more good than your allegiance to Jesus and your belief in him as it is represented by your faith. And there is nothing that Satan would like to take from you more than your faith. In everything he's trying to do, if you don't believe in Jesus already, he's trying to prevent you from believing in him. If you do believe in Jesus, he's trying to get you to not believe in Jesus. Or if you do believe in Jesus, he's trying to get you to not share the gospel, for others to not be able to believe on your behalf. Satan hates your faith. And he hates your allegiance to Jesus. This is what we see in this passage, is that Paul gets to the end and he talks about how he's worried that the tempter had tempted them because he knows that Satan hates the faith of the Thessalonians. And in this passage in particular, the kind of temptation that Satan is using to try and get the Thessalonians to not believe in Jesus is the sort of direct, physical, governmental persecution that comes directly from the government. So, in our passage, it says, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one will be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way, the tempter, Satan, had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Acts 17, 1 through 10, explains some of the context behind these verses. So Paul and Timothy and Silas arrive at Thessalonica, and they start preaching the gospel, and many Jews and many Greeks believe, but then the crowd turns against them. And the crowd turns against them and starts to incite a riot, and then brings that to the government and says, these men have incited riots everywhere. 
they believe that there's a different king, the King Jesus, instead of Caesar. And so this mob heads over to the house of a guy named Jason, who is housing Paul and Timothy and Silas, and they can't find them there, but so they bring Jason out and they force him to post bond, and then, and then over the cover of night, they send Paul and Timothy and Silas away to Berea because of the kind of persecution that's coming at them. In this passage, Satan is trying to use the direct persecution to tempt the Thessalonican believers to not believe in Jesus. And the scripture shows that Paul's solution to this kind of temptation is the companionship that results in strengthening and encouraging faith. Your faith needs friends. Your faith needs friends because Satan hates your faith. It says in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, we sent Timothy, who's our brother and coworker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one will be unsettled by these trials. So the solution to nobody being unsettled by these trials is sending Timothy so that he can strengthen and encourage the faith of the Thessalonian believers. Your faith needs friends. It needs friends and mentors and people to imitate. The problem with this is that that friendship costs something. I remember in, uh, in 2016, I was, having a, I was having a rough year. Uh, 2013 was when I became a believer in Jesus, my sophomore year of college. And pretty quickly after I became a believer, I was trying to sort out, I thought, I thought the most important thing that I could sort out would be the difference between sort of like Arminianism and Calvinism. So what's up with sort of free will and predestination? How does that all work together? How does my human responsibility interact with God's responsibility in my life? And I pretty quickly went into sort of this, this ideology that kind of gets called hyper-Calvinism, where it's like, it's so Calvinist that Calvinists are like, you're too Calvinist. Where you start to, I started to like remove human responsibility or see God as the direct agent of, of, of evil in my life. And, um, but in some ways it was really comforting because it, rationality took me there. I thought it explained everything. But what started to happen is I was only interacting with God through this really narrow lens to the degree where I was starting to think, oh, if people didn't believe the same thing, Maybe they weren't saved because they weren't, they weren't giving to God all of the glory that God deserved. And um, in the beginning of 2016, maybe this is going to sound <laughs> kind of silly, but I was up until like three or four in the morning one night reading this paper war between two professors at a couple of different seminaries de uh, debating the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism. And I got to this point as I was like frantically reading through these and getting this sinking feeling at four in the morning that... I, I think I just didn't know as much as I thought I knew. And so what started to happen is I started to spiral in the upcoming months because the only way that I interacted with God was through this really narrow lens. And so all of a sudden, reading my Bible and praying and worshiping all felt like intellectual minefields because I was like, I have, I have no idea if I'm doing this right. Or I, I don't know if I can read my Bible and come up with a conclusion and know if my conclusion is right. I had, I had no idea what to do. And this was all while I was working with Campus Crusade on UW-Madison's campus, just running on empty, telling, telling students to grow in their faith in different kinds of ways, and just not sure if that was the right way to do it. And so it got to this point where through the summer, after running on empty, I was raising support to join crew again for another year, and I, I quit. I was done. I was burnt out. And so I told crew, I'm not, I'm not going to do another year. And so at the, in the end of the summer, 
after all this having happened, and this attendant with all the other things that happen in the lives of people who are just out of college. I'd just gone through like a long, rough breakup and was still dealing with some of these sin struggles that were still deeply rooted in me. And um, I started to get to a pretty dark place. And this all happened at the same time that a friend of mine had asked me to house sit for them. So I was just alone in this big house with nothing but my thoughts about how much I hated myself in just a dark place, just a dark place. And I remember I felt an obligation that I needed to reach out to somebody. And so I thought it would be a good idea to reach out to a buddy of mine who had just moved to Oshkosh because I didn't, I wanted to fulfill the obligation to reach out to somebody, but I didn't particularly want to have to then interact with anybody in person. So I reached out to a buddy of mine named Drew, told him, just a really cagey text. I was like, hey man, not doing well. Please pray for me. Thanks. And um, he told me that he was going to leave Oshkosh and come and spend time with me. And so he drove the hour and a half away from Oshkosh and just spent an afternoon with me, prayed for me, encouraged me, played some board games, talked. And that I look at that time in my life as a significant turning point in my faith. That it was a time where I was remembered by somebody. He came and he strengthened and he encouraged my faith and it made a significant turn in my life. But some of the context with that is not only did he drive the hour and a half, but Drew was relatively recently out of college, relatively new in a job, had just adopted a foster child, not adopted, but they were fostering a foster child, um, relatively newly married, and he just dropped it all for an afternoon to come and spend time with me. And this is the same sort of thing that we see in this passage. We see this kind of costly friendship coming from Paul. The passage says, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated you from a short, for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Paul's not making some small sacrifices here. It says that Paul sent that when they, when they could stand it no longer because of the, the yearning that they had to encourage and to strengthen the Thessalonian believers, the faith of the Thessalonian believers, they thought it would be best to be left by themselves in Athens. So they sent Timothy. Let's be clear here. This is, this is Paul, Timothy, and Silas. This is three dudes who are facing down cities of unbelievers and trying to persuade them to believe in Jesus and have seen time and again that people come against them and are willing to drive them out. Losing 50% of your companions is not some sort of piddly sacrifice. But Paul makes it because he cares about the faith of the Thessalonians. Or in the earlier verses where it says that he made every effort to see them. He tried again and again, but Satan himself blocked their way. Satan himself blocked their way. Who can say that? 
Who can say that I have tried so hard to strengthen you and encourage you, but I was unsuccessful in getting to you, that the only explanation is that the prince of darkness himself has been preventing me from getting to you. I tried to send the text, you didn't see it. I tried to call you, you didn't answer. I tried to send mail and the USPS truck spontaneously combusted. I tried to, I tried to visit you and you weren't home. The, my only explanation, Satan himself was preventing me from seeing you. Why? <laughs> why, why were they willing to do that? Why was Drew willing to come? Why was Paul willing to do these things in order to strengthen and encourage the faith of their friends? Why were they willing to do it? We've talked a lot about High Point, or at High Point, how um, you can have two masters, that there's a possibility of having two masters, but if you try to do that, you'll be torn apart. Matthew 6 says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And our motivations, our motivations have two masters. There is either one, the way of idolatry, or two, the way of Jesus. It's the way of idolatry in our motivations, or there is the way of Jesus. And the question that kind of divides the two of these is what is bearing the weight? So what is the thing that when we say, I love you because, what is the thing that's bearing the weight of that because? And the first is to love one another because of our individualities or our, our particularities or the things that kind of make us special ourselves. What this produces is like, you'll tend to want to put yourself around the kind of people who you see in their, in their particularity, their higher status or more educated, or maybe you, you like them because they're sort of, your relationship with them is sort of codependent and you like the feeling of being needed by somebody. Or maybe it's, maybe it's less sort of insidious than that, but it's still like you just, you like the way they quirk and you'd like them to stay that way. And this, this isn't saying that you can't love the things that are particular about people. This isn't saying that you can't love the things that are unique about people or that make them individual. But it is saying that their particularities cannot bear the weight of consistent self-sacrificial love. I mean, imagine, imagine uh, in a marriage. So these, a young couple gets married and they love each other and they just think everything about the other one is perfect. And in particular, he, he just, he loves her because she's so sweet. And she loves him because he's, he's so driven. But then they get married and a couple months in, he realizes that after about 6 p.m., she's significantly less sweet. Or she gets married to him and realizes a couple months in that even though he's driven, if he gets stressed out, he likes to spend a couple hours unloading on video games and likes to ignore her. And she doesn't like that. If if the thing that was trying to bear the weight of why they love one another is the fact of, is, are there particularities? Are there individualities? Are the things that they particularly liked about each other? That marriage is done. It's done. And this way of thinking amongst us produces havoc. Gossip and slander and posturing and factioning and disunity. Favoritism. I like the things that make you you, and I like how those reflect on me. Did Drew come and spend time with me because he liked my personality? I was not particularly fun or funny or cool or interesting at the time. 
or smart. Like I was, I was specifically being cagey with him, trying to kind of keep him at an arm's distance. Or I was, I was not doing well intellectually. I felt, I felt dumb because I felt like I didn't know how to interact with God. And I, I wasn't particularly fun or funny. Like he wasn't trying to visit me because he liked all the specifics of my personality. And Paul isn't visiting the Thessalonians because he likes the way that they tell jokes. The other way, the other way, is to love somebody because of an ideal. And this is, this is tricky because this can, get, this can get dangerous quickly. You shouldn't trust somebody who loves just the ideal. Like, you should, you should not trust somebody if they're like, we've said this before at High Point, like, if somebody says, I love humanity and doesn't love their neighbor, then you should not trust that person. But if they say they love humanity and they're loving their neighbor, that's a safe place to be. I mean, imagine, imagine in the marriage that the thing that's going to get those two through it isn't going, to be, isn't going to be continuing to repeat the mantra to themselves, I love her because she's sweet. I love him because he's driven. I love her because she's sweet. I love him because he's driven. The thing that's going to get them through that is, I love her because she's my wife. I love him because he's my husband. And so what is the ideal? What is the ideal that Paul is rooting his care for the Thessalonians in, for the Thessalonians in. What is the thing that he's rooting it in? The thing he's rooting it in is he's rooting his care in Christ. He's rooting his care in Christ. This is the only thing that can bear the weight of consistent self-sacrificial love is to root your care in Christ. It's all in verses 19 and 20. It says, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. This is the thing that Paul roots his care in. He roots his care in the fact that when Jesus is revealed, the Thessalonians are his hope, his joy, the crown in which he will glory in, that he will bask in the glory of the Thessalonians. I remember um, a couple, couple months ago, I read The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And one thing that he includes in that book is he, he talks about what it looks like to fall in love in a, in a Christian marriage. And um, this, is, this is the quote that he says. He says, within this, vision of, within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you. And it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. When we get there, I will look at your magnificence and I'll say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. When Jesus comes, I want to look at my friends and weep knowing that they shine a little brighter because of what God used me for in their lives. Or that some of them are there because of the ways that God used me in their lives. And they wouldn't have been there otherwise. And I don't want to hear, John, you missed it. Because you couldn't send a text message. Or because you couldn't drive. Or because you thought the conversation would be too difficult. Root your care in Christ. Root your care in Christ. This is the kind of care that can look past the things that, are try- that people are trying to put up externally. 
people are have, who are having a rough go of it are, are having a rough go of it, and they tend to put up walls, and they put up defense mechanisms, and they do things to try and isolate and keep other people from themselves. And, and part of that is on them, and part of that is, is there is an important discipline in opening ourselves up to one another. But part of, part of care in this motivation, part of what can happen because of care with this motivation is it can reach through some of that. Satan hates your faith. Your faith needs friends. <laughs> and it needs friends who root their care in Christ. And Satan hates the faith of your friends. And your friends need friends who care about their faith and who are doing that because they root their care in Christ. And so what should we do? We should root our care in Christ and make every effort to, to strengthen and encourage the faith of our friends. Make every effort to strengthen and encourage the faith of our friends. And listen, what I'm not saying is that you're responsible to do everything in the faith of your friends or that you're responsible that, that if they aren't doing well and you try to do something and they still aren't doing well, that that's somehow your fault. You don't need to get a savior complex. Jesus, I mean, Jesus had 12 disciples he had three in particular that he poured into it. He was doing full-time ministry. So this isn't like every new person who comes into the church you need, to, you need to be reaching out to and you need to spend everything in order to encourage their faith. But it is saying you should have some people who you're doing this for. There should be some people in your life who you are doing the work self-sacrificially to strengthen and encourage their faith. This is the, um, this is the reach out to people talk. In this time that we're in with coronavirus, there is, there is nothing that Satan would love to do more than take this time where we're all split into our little groups and kind of scattered from one another and not able, to, not able to hug each other. He would love to use this time to do nothing more than to tempt us away from our faith. He would love to do nothing more in our friends than to tempt them away from faith. He would love to do nothing more than to take this time to scatter the sheep. Or over the past couple weeks in our country, everything that's going on in race relations, the lament over George Floyd and people expressing anger against police and brutal rioting and Twitter and Facebook on fire with hot takes and moral posturing and we're seeing things in our cities that haven't been seen since the 1960s. Now is the time especially to care about the faith of our friends. Satan would love to use the terror and the frustration and the anger and the pain and the disillusionment to drive us away from one another and to drive us away from Jesus. He would love to use this to tempt us. We'd love to use this to tempt us. And this, this doesn't need to be some crazy difficult thing. What Timothy, what Paul was going, what Paul was sending Timothy to the Thessalonians to do was to strengthen and encourage their faith. That's it. The solution that he was seeing to the fact that Satan was tempting them with direct physical and governmental persecution was to strengthen and encourage their faith. Strengthen them. So set them on solid ground. Pray for them. 
Encourage them. Remind them to keep fighting, to keep pushing. Remind them that Jesus is in the battle with them. Jesus has not forsaken them. And also, be the kind of person who freely receives strengthening and encouragement that your friends give. When I first read this passage, um, in particular this verse, 1 Thessalonians 3.5, I felt kind of defensive. It says, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. I was just imagining like a, like a friend of mine coming up to me and being like, hey man, uh, I, just, I just was trying to find out about your faith because I was afraid that, you know, the tempter had tempted you and my labor on your faith might have been in vain. My initial reaction to that was like, it feels, in some ways it doesn't feel good. But I think the only reason that it wouldn't feel good is either pride or suspicion within ourselves. Either, either the kind of pride that would say, listen, my faith is fine. Leave me alone. I can handle it. I'm doing fine. Or the kind of suspicion that would be put in the place of like anticipating that somebody is sort of doing some posturing over you or by trying to help you, they're somehow putting themselves above you. But if, it's, if those things aren't the case and if, if this is being said in earnest, I sent to find out about your faith because I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. And so I wanted to do the work that that wouldn't happen. If that's said in earnest, that is a safe place to be. It's a safe place to be. And listen, Jesus is the better friend. Jesus is the better friend. So this isn't a call to anxiety. This isn't a call to like, okay, I need to be doing this all the time in the lives of every single person I know or else Satan is going to tempt their faith and they're going to lose their faith and this is, this is going to be terrible. This isn't, this isn't a call to have that kind of, those kind of thoughts about the faith of your friends or about your own faith. But it is a call to realignment of your priorities into everything that Jesus has already been concerned about in you and in the people who you care about. You aren't responsible for the faith of your friends, but in a way you are responsible to the faith of your friends for at least some of them. He is working on your faith. He is working to strengthen and encourage you. Jesus is the better, he is the better friend. He is the one we imitate. He is the one who is our example. And even though this passage is about, is describing what Paul went through, that he was, he was separated from the Thessalonians, and so he was concerned about their faith, and so he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them. And he was, he was filled with, that, that came from a place where he was rooted in the joy of what would be revealed when he saw them before Jesus. Even though this passage is about Paul, it's also about Jesus. Jesus is no longer amongst us physically, but he cares about us deeply. And he knows that the evil one would love to tempt you he would love to destroy your faith. And so he sent the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and encourage us and guard us. And when he comes back, you will be his joy. You will be his crown. You will be his inheritance. Jesus' love for you isn't rooted in the fact that you're 6'2 and have brown hair. It's rooted in the fact that it's, it's rooted in himself. It is rooted in himself. Jesus is the better friend. And we enter into this kind of care through his death and resurrection. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That all have sinned. That all of us are held in right condemnation before a holy God. And so 
Jesus is the one who, who is our mediator. He is the one who lived a perfect life on our behalf, who gave us the reward that we did not deserve. And that's something you can believe in right now, to enter into his care, because Jesus is the better friend.